0: Um, If you have a Bible, we're in uh, Mark's Gospel, Chapter 6. I've been studying through this for a couple of months now. Mark, Chapter 6. We're going to deal with most, uh, like half of the chapter, I would think. Um, First 29 verses, we've got a lot to do. I've had a couple of you, maybe maybe more than I've liked the last couple of weeks, to ask me how it feels to have my sons getting married, and um, three of them at least moving out of the house real soon. And I have to confess, it's kind of weird you know, those of you who've been through the experience, it's weird because I am programmed to like chaos and noise, so it's strangely quiet, you know? It's like, I don't know what to do, so I go make my own noise, I guess, but, but I think that's a little bit true of every change of life, stage of life change that you go through, is that, that there are things you uh, aren't prepared for, maybe, um, things that you kind of grow into or comfortable. I'm certain after a couple of months, I'll, I'll get it figured out what it's like to have a quiet house. Um, But I think it's exponentially true. This change is radical change when you come to Christ. For a believer who um, has their eyes open, something totally changes, right? Your affections get uh, morphed. Your uh, attitudes, your desires get changed. There's a total heart change. It's the outcome of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that the story of the good news that our, our new life and our Old life kind of separate, and your new life just kind of shows up. And there's so much change that happens there, specifically that that kind of demeanor, that attitude of of, of knowing your sins are covered and knowing you're loved eternally by God. There is a huge change that takes place. But with that said, there is still so much left to change in our life, isn't it true? Like you, you can have new affections and love Jesus a lot, but there's still a lot of train wreck in our life, isn't there? And uh, and there are things over time that God works to transform. Things like what you know and what you believe and what you do, those things begin to, to morph over time. And, and I don't really think that anyone ever arrives saying, okay, that's, that's it, finished product, there's nothing to learn, okay? In other words, I think we grow in what it means to follow Jesus. It's the definition of what it is to be a disciple. That's the process after we come to Christ. The rest of it is becoming his follower, becoming his disciple and the way he changes us over time through that. That is precisely the point of these 29 verses, in my opinion, of, of Mark's gospel in chapter 6. In fact, when we outlined this whole section, when we were going to the preaching collective, we gave it the title, The Cost of Discipleship. After spending a a week with it this week, I think that title's a little bit narrow, too narrow. Um, Clearly, following Christ involves cost, but there's more to being a disciple than just the cost of following him. There's attitude things and actions that are part of what it means to follow Christ. And so I've kind of morphed the title a little bit to call it the life of a disciple. This is what you can expect as you follow Jesus, all right? Let me give you a couple disclaimers before we get into it. Um, Like I said, 29 verses, three stories, and a a lot in here. Um, In fact, I've taught Mark in the past, and I've done this section in in three or four sermons. And so more than likely, uh, you're going to have something that you have a question about, something that you emphasize in your reading that I just go right past. Please don't uh, Mistake that for me just ignoring those things. But what I'm trying to do in a large section in a short time is to draw the thread, to find the thread, the story of why Mark would put it together like this. Remember, we told you that Mark is... captured and collected these stories and put them in sequence to, to make a point. In, in Matthew's gospel, these stories happen in chapter 13 and chapter 10. Mark lines them up and he lines them up to make a point. And I think the point that he's trying to make is this is what it looks like to live the life of a disciple. So if we're believers in this room, some of these things are just going to ring, just ring in our lives because we've experienced it, we know it, we've been with Christ long enough. To some of us who might be new to the Christian faith or discovering, investigating the Christian faith, these things might sound a little bit absurd, and I hope we can explain it in a way that you understand it, but either way, just get it in your mind. This is the picture of the life of a follower of, of Christ. And I think Mark tells us what that looks like in these three particular stories. The first story is, is Jesus going home to Nazareth. The second story is Jesus calling the 12, sending out the 12 apostles to do ministry. And the last one is the death of John the Baptist. So this is what I'm going to attempt to do. We'll read each story individually and then we'll draw out of it what are those kind of lessons, what are those realities for the life of a disciple, okay? Cool? Here's the first one. Let's look at the Jesus re- uh, rejected in Nazareth, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there. Now remember where he was. He was in Capernaum, right? After he'd come across the lake doing ministry. He's left there, now gone south. He's in his hometown, all right? And his disciples followed him. Verse two, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and... "'Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us?' And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, "'A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown "'and among his relatives and in his own household. "'And he could not do any mighty work there "'except that he laid his hands on a few sick people "'and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. "'And he went about among the villages teaching.'" Hopefully, in just those short verses, you saw two very polarizing responses, two polarizing words in in the the day in the life of Christ here. One is in verse two, the word astonished, and in verse three, the word offended or offense. Now, if you're paying attention, how is it possible that almost in less than a paragraph, people can respond with astonishment and, and then getting offended by Christ. Let let me just describe to you uh, the astonishment. Verse two, it says very simply here, the words and the wisdom and the works of Jesus were undeniable. And the only thing they were left with was questions, how is it possible that this man can say those things in such a way? How can he have such deep wisdom about life? And how can you explain what, what he does? And their response to what he was as a person, what he did, was pretty impressive. They were only left with kind of bewilderment, astonishment. He's, he's impressive. That's undeniable. But right on the heels of that response is to take offense. And he took offense to Jesus. You can find the offense in a couple of sections. In, in verse 1, where it says he went to his hometown. Let me just tell you about Nazareth a little bit. Yeah, like I've told you before, it's a no place. A serious no place it 's carved out of the rocks there' sixty acres, maybe um, they said at the, at the height of its population, maybe five hundred people that is where Jesus grew up, that is hometown for for Jesus. Nobody comes from this place, nobody of any importance whatsoever and when they say isn 't that a carpenter? I know what you think. Have you go back in your mind to some movie you 've seen where Jesus is carefully he kind of hewing out of a log, this wonderful piece of furniture. Well, the, the word carpenter means more than just what you think of, like working with wood. The idea is as, as a craftsman in that culture, the craftsman was the man who had skill with his hands. He was the fix-it guy. He was the guy, if your roof leaked, you would call. He's the guy, if your cart was broken, you would call. He was a blue collar, call him on the phone, Jesus, we've got a broken pipe, and Jesus would show up. Now, just picture in your mind the handyman of, of Nazareth the blue-collar guy. You want to know why they took offense. They heard the words, they saw the work, they saw the wisdom, and their first thing they thought of was, wait a minute, I've been to this guy's shop. What what are we doing here? This is totally offensive to me. That that statement, son of Mary, um, was not a mistake. It was an intentional insult to Christ, because you would always be called by your father's name. And, and some would believe, and probably so, that Joseph is dead now, so they're cutting it some slack, but that's not the intention of this phrase. The idea is that they were kind of suggesting that, that Jesus was illegitimate by not referring to his father. So it's an observation that he's too blue-collar from no place. They're offended, and then they start kind of calling him Ill- illegitimate, right? The offense word is scandalon. it's the word where we get scandalous, it means to be put off by someone. Their reaction was deep and it was felt and it was true and they were just put off. After they sorted out the works and the words and the wisdom and they figured out who he was and really where he's been from and they just kind of shut down and Jesus in verse 4 shares a parable. Um, and this parable, by the way, wasn't just true in Jewish culture. It was true in Roman culture and Greek culture. And it's true in our culture, although we don't throw it around much. This is what verse 4 says. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Now, isn't that truly a part of our life? of The Christian life I'm talking about. Isn't it true that verse 4 uh, means that when you go full bore out loud for Jesus to the people closest to you, aren't they the ones, the first ones to say, he's kind of losing it. He's not normal anymore. He used to be so cool. Isn't that Doesn't that happen? In fact, we've all experienced that at some point. Some people who are most familiar with us reject Jesus in us, reject the Savior in us and try to marginalize us and they're offended by us. Jesus draws three concentric circles in describing where you don't have honor and they all get more personal as you go down, right? We've got it in the hometown, in the relatives' life and in your home. That that's how it's responded to. People know you. Each one gets more personal. The problem they had with Jesus is he was too common. He was too familiar. Jesus was thirty years old when he started his ministry. Guess where he lived those thirty years? Nazareth. It was just yesterday, and there were, just yesterday you were here, and just yesterday you wore the apron and you fixed the things and you were you, weren't you your Mary's son who was taking care of the family after Joseph died? Aren't you the guy just down the just down the street in the other cave? Aren't you him? He was too familiar and too common. Now this reality, this. This proverb is true for us too, but we, for lots of other reasons, it's true. Because people closest to us see the problems, don't they? Jesus didn't have problems. He was just common to them. But people who are close to us see the sin, see the hypocrisy, don't they? I mean, we're well-meaning. Trust me. I'm giving everybody a pass here that you love Jesus, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But that day, you know that day, we had no patience or that moment where selfishness overtook you, or that moment where anger was your response, all those things. Guess who gets to see that? Every concentric circle. Everybody closest to you gets to see where you said something. I've heard you say this about the gospel, but you're not living it. And so those people who aren't, don't have their eyes open, who don't know Jesus, whose hearts are still hard, they look at you, and not only are you so familiar and common to them, but now you're a hypocrite. Do you see the problem here? This, this truth, the prophet is not without honor in his hometown with his relatives, with the people closest to him, is, is our experience. And the other reality of, our, of people's response to us is that Jesus has always been an offense. He, he, let me paint the best case scenario for you. Let's say you're having a great day and you, you have spent time with Christ and your faith is on it like a high moment and you're living for it and talking about it and sacrificing for it and everything else. But here's what happens when someone is on the outside looking in at the Jesus in you. What happens typically in them is they're offended at Jesus in you. They take offense to those things because what you do in your life living for Christ is an unwanted like, um, conviction to them. Simply by your obedience, it says, I am not doing that. I am not that person. I am selfish to the core, and I've just run over you, and you've responded in love. I'm convicted by those things. And so those people closest to us are the ones who who show it. And some of us in this room right now are living in the tension of being absolutely alone in your faith around the people you love the most, it's all on you. And you have nobody to to carry it with you. And you're rejected because of Christ. All I'm suggesting to you, if we're going to talk about the life of a disciple, then don't be surprised when you're rejected and sometimes rejected by the people closest to you. Because if they rejected Jesus, then they're going to reject you, right? Isn't that possible? There's a couple other reminders in this particular section. One, just really important not to forget being exposed to Jesus in the gospel isn't a guarantee of faith. It never is. You would think hanging around with Jesus their entire life, his family would go, he's great. This guy is awesome. He's always kind and um, gentle and sacrificing and giving and worshiping and he knows so much. Well, that wasn't their response. Just, just so you know, some of you have spent so much time as parents, as loved ones, and don't make mistake thinking that that proximity equals a guarantee of faith. You still need divine intervention. The Holy Spirit needs to move and draw that person t- to life. And sometimes, what typically happens is that, <clears throat> without faith, exposure to the things of Christ simply inoculates us as opposed to leads us. Right? I'm numb to it. I've heard it. I've shut it off. The other thing I think that sticks out in this particular story is that there's a mystery in what God is doing, and we got to remember that too. There are people we're absolutely convinced with opportunity and proximity and what they've heard and who they grew up around and whose kids they are or whatever, they're going to they're gonna come to Christ, right? And then there are people we would never, ever, ever, ever see coming to Jesus, and they do. And it just blows our mind. Sort of, sort of like we back up a couple stories where Jesus confronts the man at the Gerasenes possessed by a legion of demons. No one would pick that guy ever to, to worship the Lord, and yet he does. And yet here we have his family who hung around with him his whole life, no inconsistencies in his life whatsoever, and they don't get it. There's a mystery in this gospel presentation, and that should, that should comfort us that God knows what he's doing, even though we don't. Fair? Let's go on to this second event, the second story, and drag out of it some observations of the life of a disciple. Starting in verse 7 through 13, it's when Jesus sends out the 12. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 7 tells us a part of what it means to be a disciple. The disciples are called and disciples are sent. Is anybody surprised by that? Most Christians I know Kind of the 101 of their Christian faith is that once they're saved, they are now ambassadors, right? That whether you use that term or not, you are a representative of Jesus. Jesus in you means that your life is lived for Christ. And what we talk to other people about is the hope that we have, right? Fair. Everyone simply kind of knows that at the beginning or at least been taught there very early in their confession. Most people know Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Most people would know those sections, but, but if I'm honest, in my opinion, when it comes to being ambassadors for Christ, there, there is a lack in the church, and the lack is the urgency of the call. I, I don't know about your life, so I can't talk in precision, precision about what you do or what you don't do, but generally speaking, there is a kind of a sleep-at-the-wheel version of how we are maintaining the call and the, and the going about our faith, right? And I think in the background, there's this unspoken part of us that thinks, well, um, that particular aspect of a Christian, that's for the serious ones, right? That, that's for the professional Christians, for the pastors and the missionaries. They're the ones that are supposed to be urgent about it. They're the ones with a call and they're supposed to go and I'll support it, but that's not my, my deal, Okay. I want to put a rule down on you just so you can carry it around with you the rest of your life, by the way. Um, If you were called by Jesus, and by that I mean you come to faith in Christ. You give him your sin and he covers you in his righteousness. If that is you, if you've been called by Jesus, then you've also been called for Jesus. No exceptions. That mandate to get busy as a messenger and an ambassador and a voice. Uh, an evangelist to tell people the lost world that the only way to have sins forgiven is to know Jesus, to repent of your sin. That has to be in the hearts and the mouths of the church to everyone. This is not for the professional. This is not for those who have a specific specific giftedness in this area. This is the call for all believers to to go, okay? And if I'm being honest, again, I would say we could do so much more than we do. some of us have a kind of an evangelistic method about us that we are waiting for people to initiate the conversation with us. And if they do, I might give them a kind of a invitation or, hey, come to church, and and we, we might step out a little bit. But I think we need to change our tactics to a more intentional version. And if you've been around for the last three years, we presented to you three years ago, the essentials of a strong church. And the essential element that we brought to you regarding this area was intentional evangelism. And we picked that intentional word on purpose because evangelism can happen lots of ways. But the mandate of the church is to step up and own the call to go, to own the call to tell people about Christ. Is there ways that we can be more intentional? Certainly we can pray, right? And that's not to put off like real verbiage to to people, but prayer has got power in it. Do you believe that? It, uh, this also happened three years ago when we presented the intentional evangelism. We asked you to give us three names of people to pray for. Lost friends, family members, whatever. We collected thousands of names and we've been praying for them for, for years. I don't know if you knew that. It's a faithful group of people that pray every Wednesday. By the way, you're invited to that Wednesday nights in the bulletin. But these people have been praying and we're hearing stories. Uh, w- one man years ago put in his three sons, his adult sons. And in their life story, they're all over the map, like all over the, you know, hurt myself map, like in problems. And God has been faithful to save every one of those boys since we've been praying. And that's one story of lots of stories. Prayer is a very intentional way to go after and fulfill the call to love the lost. We can also open our mouths and initiate the conversation about Jesus. But I know, I know, it's like I almost hear it in the background. I hear all the, you know, kind of the explanations of why that isn't so easy. Tim, I'd love to do that, but here's the problem. I, I, I don't know enough. I mean, if I got in a conversation with somebody about Jesus, I'd run out of things to say in two seconds. They would catch me in a place that would make Jesus look stupid and me look stupid, and I just I just, I just, don't know enough. I'm, I'm not good at it. I've tried, and when I do it, I draw blanks. I, I don't know what to do with those things. And, and maybe, maybe you're here and you say, well, and by the way, I've got a list of things that I'm struggling with. So I feel like a hypocrite every time I start talking about Jesus and there are things in my life. I don't, I don't give up. And so for those reasons and maybe a thousand other reasons, I'm simply leaving that to the professional and, and leaving that to the people that are more skilled or more holy th- than me. But if that's you, then you need to see this, this other reality for the life of a disciple in verses 8 through 10. It's the third one. God and his gospel are enough for you then. In fact, um, Jesus says to them, he charged them, That's all you need. He charged them to take nothing. Why, why would Jesus say to the 12, he's sending out to do this ministry, empty your pockets. Go with nothing. Why, why would Jesus say that to, to these men at this point? Um, if I'm assessing these guys, um, I would at least conclude that sending them like this was way premature. And we were only three chapters ago, and they were in the boat in the storm saying, don't you love us, Jesus? They don't even understand the depth and the eternalness of, of God's love for them. Eventually, we'll see they don't have endurance. They can't even pray. They can't last. They don't believe enough. They don't know enough. If I'm picking men to go and represent me, I don't pick these guys, not now. But somehow Jesus did pick these guys and he picked them and said, hey, by the way, empty your pockets. Take nothing with you. What is the possible point of Jesus sending them out empty-handed? Here's the thing. He's sending them out as a loud and clear message that being obedient to the call of God doesn't depend on your perfection. Going out and being obedient to the call to tell others about Jesus doesn't depend upon how wise you are. It doesn't depend on your ability or your skill or your plans or how prepared you are with the plans. These disciples went out with nothing but the power of God. Nothing but what Jesus would provide for them when they needed it and it's never changed. It's never changed. So whatever list of reasons why you've held back from engaging in the call. You can't use the excuse that you're not ready anymore. You can't say you don't know enough anymore, or there's problems that prohibit you from engaging. Jesus sent these men who were not ready and told them to empty everything they have and go anyway and watch me work. Do you believe that God is supernaturally going to use you, even in your inabilities to reach people? course he is. Remember, we talked about this last week. His strength shows up in your weakness. And that's not a commercial to be ignorant or not know or not grow. Clearly, you're in the process of that. But it's certainly a depiction that you can't excuse yourself from the call and and the mandate. Here's the reality. Our life depends on the power that Jesus provides our strength is in Him. One writer said it this way, the point of the, taking the minimum of provisions was meant to call out for a maximum of faith. I suppose if we use our excuses not to engage in God's call, I think what we're believing more in is ourselves than our God. I think that probably is a challenge for us. And by the way, whenever we offer these kinds of excuses as opposed to just simply obeying God, we're saying at least two things. One is that He doesn't know what He's doing God is clueless about me because he would know I'm not ready. Or the possibility that he won't or can't provide what you need. Nobody wants to say that, right? So, let's move on to the fourth reality for the life of a disciple. Verse 11. It's a sincere concern for the lost. Verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I know how this phrase reads. I probably have used it many times in my life for the wrong reasons. Um, at a just a quick glance, it sounds so detached, so cold, uh, so uncaring, uh, it, kind of a hostile approach to telling others about Jesus. It would go something like this, oh, oh really, you don't want him? Screw you, you get what you deserve and uh, sorry man, see you in hell, that would be the kind of approach to, that's how it reads, but that wasn't the attitude of this phrase at all. One, One writer said it this way, listen very carefully, this act was a merciful prophetic act designed to make the people think deeply about their spiritual condition. In other words, this was a visible sermon this was the last thing you did, leaving an area that was rejecting what you said. It was a way to visibly say, please listen to me. Please hear what I'm talking about. It it was uh, to people who rejected, to people with hard hearts, it was a compelling, visible sign that they need to reconsider what they're thinking. And I suppose if that's the heart and I suppose we need to think about this part of this. We can't see people that are lost, I don't care who they are, as, as just tasks to do in, in God's kingdom. Here, here's the thing I think is, is always true. The only real way to talk about Jesus is to really care about people. It's the only real, like, like foolproof, you won't have regret method. If you care about people, no matter how they respond, you've done it well. And we'll add more to that in a little bit. But that phrase is not used to just kind of be indifferent and write it off. There was a real concern to make certain they got what it was they were rejecting. Here's the fifth reality for the life of a disciple. Our message hasn't changed. Verse 12, very simple. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Message hasn't changed. And the only way to call someone to repent is to tell someone about sin to tell someone about God's holiness. That's the only way to tell somebody to turn. Here's who God is. Here's where you are. Turn from that and turn to God. That's the idea of repentance. And I know that that kind of message today is kind of, um, how do I say this? It's not the easiest one. So in light of what we just said before, to care for people, to truly care for people, that's the easy part. To um, extend ourselves with sympathy and compassion to meet their needs and care. And that is right and that is good and we should do that. But that is not, that is not a replacement for telling people about sin and a Savior. This, this message, and it's amazing to me, if you pick up any great sermon. Um, of the past, most of the ones that have the biggest impact are devastating to the heart of man. Devastating. You would look at these sermons and go, who would read this? All it does is tell you you're responsible for everything on your way to hell. Who would read these things? Somehow in the mystery of God, when people get close to their, their biggest issues and their greatest need, then Jesus becomes more vibrant and the message that we portray is a message of care and concern and sympathy and meeting needs. It is. But it's not a replacement for verbal gospel that you're in sin and here's the holy God and this is how you can know him through Christ alone, by faith alone. That has to come out of our mouths. We have to tell them because if we don't tell them, nobody gets saved. That's the reality of it. Your special sympathy and concern saves no one. They might like you and they might enjoy it, but without hearing about a savior who gave his life as a ransom for many, no one, no one, no one gets saved. Do you understand? The message has never changed. Now, I am not suggesting for one second that we we should be obnoxious or aggressive. I am simply saying that I don't think I would worry too much about being clever. I would just be faithful. Just be faithful to this message. And if we believe and know that it's God who opens the eyes of dead men's hearts, then we don't have to worry about whether or not the gospel message is going to be too much for them to bear. We simply carry one mandate, truth in love, truth in love. And the truth has to include the gospel story. You understand? Make sense? So let's move on. The sixth reality of the life of a disciple, verse 13, that there is the same power available And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. Now, clearly Jesus gave the apostles a unique authority in verse 7, that they were to deal with the unclean spirits, but there is nevertheless power for us as we go. You know this is true. You know this is true, this, this little kernel of faith in you, that at that moment where all the tension comes in and you have that fear of man, that you're going to be rejected, that moment where faith leans into the conversation, who does that come from? Where is that power from? It's from God to you to speak. It is God who orchestrates the events. He's the one who gives words precisely at the right time. Ha- haven't you had this experience? It happens to me almost weekly. Um, and when you're talking, you can't believe that came out of your mouth? You, don't, you didn't know you knew that, or you didn't know you could put it in such a way that it made sense. God does those things. That's the power of God to bring about those events and, and those particular opportunities to communicate the truth, and, and you can't diminish it. It is clearly the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power in our life. And after all, here's, here's probably the biggest one. If you want to see the power of God, all you have to know is that God saves sinners There's no greater power in all the world that people, listen, people you share the hope of Christ with will get saved. I don't know if all of them will. Some of them will. And he's sovereign over that. But nevertheless, he doesn't lose any. You understand? And there's power in that. And so just like the apostles were sent out with power, so are we. We're not alone. Make sense? Here's uh, number seven and eight. And we have to read a long story to get to it. So Let's pick it up in verse 14 and bear with me as we read this, and I'll make two points, one obscure, one obvious, about what it means to live as a disciple. Okay, now, so just picture in your your mind, Jesus doing all these miracles, the apostles have now gone out, they're representing Jesus doing the same kinds of things, people responding the same kinds of ways, same kinds of healing here in verse 14, King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become, become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I've beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him to be put to death, but she could not. Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard of him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, "Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you." And he vowed to her, "Whatever you ask, I'll give to you, up to half of my kingdom." And she went out and said to her mother, "For what should I ask?" And she said, "The head of John the Baptist." And she came immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, "I want you to give me the head once at once, the head of John the Baptist on a platter." And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and the guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He immediately, the, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Like I said, there's probably way more points to make about this long narrative than the ones I'm going to make, but I'm only going to make two in the Five minutes I've got left okay the first one is the obscure one listen very carefully your words your message is never wasted it's never wasted it's interesting to me there was a season according to verse 20 where Herod leaned in to what John was saying he wasn't saved wasn't like he trusted in Jesus, but he heard him gladly. That's how verse 20 ends. Some, something about what John was saying and the way John lived moved him in his heart, at least an interest, a curiosity. Maybe it connected to some kind of emptiness in Herod's heart. Who knows? But he was, he was considering him a righteous and holy man. He protected him, avoided him from, from Herodias' desire for his murder, and he was interested. He heard him gladly. There was something about what John said stuck with Herod. Okay? And so here we are, now fast forward. Herod hears the stories about Jesus and disciples, and John has now been, he's already been beheaded, and he hears these wonderful, miraculous stories, and what, what floods back to his mind? What John used to say. And possibly guilt, possibly conviction. Herod knows he killed a righteous and a good man, and he hears the righteousness of Jesus and the stories of Christ, and the first thing he thinks about is, oh, John, John, John's been raised from the dead. I know this story. Here's what I want you to get from this. I want you to take from this. Some of you have poured your heart out on your children. Some of you have poured your heart out on your moms or your dads or your husbands or your wives or your friends or your coworkers or somebody extended to you and, and they just reject it. They just kind of stiff arm you and they, they, you know, tell you no thank you. And as far as you know, all they do is just reject it and you feel a little bit like you've wasted your time. You haven't wasted your time. You haven't wasted your time, and so if you want one particular encouragement, don't give up. To some who we've exhausted ourselves telling about Jesus, someday, someday in God's provincial timing, he is going to... uh, Use someone or something to bring it all back to their minds. This wonderful story of the gospel happens in pixels, I think. It's like this. Someone at one point in your life at whatever age says something about sin and a savior, and it sticks, even though you reject it. And then down the road, there's another conversation, another meeting, or something you saw on television, or something you heard on the radio, and God takes and orchestrates all of the stories to bring about the conversion of a one. You're not wasting your time. You need to have hope. And to some, after all that we've done, what you've said ultimately will accomplish what God's intended purpose was, and it's that, their salvation. That's, that's how it's going to go down. And so the, point, the simple point I'm trying to make is that our words aren't wasted no matter what, no matter how it feels. In fact, here's a promise from the prophet Isaiah. This is God uh, speaking about his word and his faithfulness. It's in Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in bringing the thing of which I said. Listen, church, God doesn't waste his words and he never wastes his words that come out of your mouth about him. No matter where you feel like you're in the story, no matter how many times your kids rejected you or your loved ones have walked away and have stiffed armed you, you're never wasting your time. Be encouraged. Okay, that's the obscure point out of this story. Here's the most obvious one. For the life of a disciple, it's costly. You get that probably. It's not too hard right from the beheading. You understand? Now, I'm not suggesting anybody in here at any point in time is gonna have to give your life or your head for your faith. More than likely, in the version of life that we have here in Arizona, America, you're safe. No one's going to come and confront you physically. More than likely, you're going to die a fat and sassy person, okay? Um, But following Christ is costly if you understand that what he asks for is everything. And I suppose I could give it a huge pregnant pause there and let you figure out what everything is, but maybe I'll help you in the minute I have left. See, here's here's the reality. Jesus isn't making compromises regarding this request, right? He's requiring surrender. Surrender. That's what it means to follow Jesus, your life for his life. It means lining up under him. It means at least as you perceive it, as you learn it, as you know it about yourself, you're constantly laying down things. In essence, you're dying to yourself. You've heard of this before, right? Am I saying that God wants you to go somewhere? I have no idea. I don't know what cost it is. I have no idea. God is very specific in what he does with the church and how he moves people around. I I, I wouldn't know that. Um, But whatever it is it always includes something personal. The cost is always personal. To John, it was his life. To you, it might be something like your control. I mean, the gospel wants to deal with the fact that he is sovereign over your life, and yet your life is measured by the fact that you try to keep everything under your control and you work on people so that you can be happy and you can have peace, and that's not the gospel version of life. The gospel version of life says you're in control, and I might not understand, but I can have peace. And yet, so here's what could happen in your little world is that God comes and says, okay, I want surrender. I want that. I want you to stop trying to manipulate and control things so that you can find peace apart. For me, I want you to lay it down. To some, it might be your marriage. To some, it might be your bank account. To some, it might be your business. To some, it might be relationships. It could be some kind of habit. You keep secret because it's your coping mechanism. All I'm saying is that Jesus wants surrender. He wants your life. It's costly. And when you lay something down that's personal, you're going to feel it. But trust me in this. The reward of the kingdom is so far greater than what you're holding on to. You have no idea the blessings that come with that. So if you want a snapshot, and we went through it really quickly. If you want a snapshot of what it looks like to follow, to be a disciple, there you go. It's a picture that says you're going to be rejected and sometimes by the people closest to you. That's not fun. But it's a picture that has a, a mandate to go and tell under the power that he provides, in spite of our deficiencies and our inabilities. We don't have excuses anymore because he's more than enough for us. We care deeply for people. We tell the message of sin and a savior and understand that every word, every syllable that comes out of our mouth, that God will use it somehow, some way, and nothing's wasted. We're not, no matter how much we're rejected, we're not wasting our life. And to follow him is costly. So here's what I know. I got done with the sermon, and I said, God, help. Okay, so if you're here um, and you feel the same way, let's pray right now for help to follow. Father, thank you so much for these reminders. And I do pray for us, for myself and for these people, that we would follow you. In the faith that you provide to lay down our lives, to love others as you have loved us. And I pray, God, that you would get the glory and you would save the sinner. I pray this in Christ's name.